Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanos. If he gets all the Infinity Stones, he'll wipe out half the universe. So, Josh, Thanos gets all of those Infinity Stones. He wipes out half the universe, including half of all the movies. Would then Avengers Infinity War have a shot at making your top 10 of 2018? My memory of Infinity War disintegrated sometime around June, I'm afraid. This week on the show, barring the end of the universe, we've got part one of our top 10 of 2018 roundtable. No Infinity War, but Marvel, good news, you're not entirely shut out. Joining us, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and from the Next Picture Show podcast and TheVerge.com, Tasha Robinson. It is all ahead. Thanos just tweeted that he didn't like Roma. That guy is the worst. On film spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome to our top 10 films of 2018 roundtable. Josh is here, of course, and Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune is here, our regular guest this time of year. Michael, so nice to have you. Good to have you. (laughs) Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and the Next Picture Show podcast. She is also a returning guest this year for the roundtable, and Tasha... Did I hear this correctly? You basically pulled a throw. I mean, maybe like throw with the DVD player, but you went out to the woods (laughs) just to try to cram in as many movies as you could before this show. How how far did you get? Well, all the way, all the way out into the woods. (laughs) Yes, okay. We We didn't stop halfway into the (laughs) woods and just set up the DVD player. How about watching movies? How many did you see? Uh, I think we only watched seven movies. Um, You know, we were we were there for three days, but we did other things like sleep. I was going to say, how much sleep have you yeah, had in the last so much sleep. 48 hours? Have you been eating or drinking or just watching movies? Uh, neither me or my husband are that big uh, drinkers, but, you know, we, we cooked and hot tubbed and slept and read nice. books and stuff like that. Right. This is my usual birthday getaway. The big thing is the cabin in the woods that we go to has no Wi-Fi has no cell signal. So there's ah. not a whole lot to do except what we bring with us. And I always bring a huge pile of awards yeah. screeners because it's usually the last weekend before awards voting. It sounds so it's always catch up time. Lovely and productive. We have two parts to this top 10, just like last year. This week, it's going to be part one, the outliers, for the most part, movies that only showed up on one of our lists. And then next week, part two, the consensus picks, movies that showed up on multiple lists. And as part of that show, we will share our number one films of the year. We have a fair amount of overlap at the top of our list, but we do each have a different film in the top spot. 
did some of the numbers crunching here, just like last year, only three films made three lists, and no film this year made all four lists. We had one movie huh. last year that was on all four of our lists. Does anyone recall the title? Mm. It was I Tasha's can't. number one. Ooh. It appeared for it? all of us, Get Out. Get Out. Okay, well, good. That, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But not this year. So we do have a little conversation starter here to get us going, and we're curious, what film that didn't make your top ten do you most hope isn't forgotten by audiences of the future who only have this show to guide them. So you could throw out, I suppose, your number 11 pick if you wanted to, but we may have time for some honorable mentions. Or you could think of it in those more grandiose terms, a movie or two that might be forgotten by time if you don't single it out here. Hmm. Who wants to jump in? Well, I love the premise that in in the future, in the dystopian Uh future... Film, film spotting, spotting is it. All the time. It's it's twenty four seven. It's the stuff <laughs> you can't get away from it. It's not just the stuff of podcast legends, the stuff of YA bestsellers, right? <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> I mean, my I, I, I flaunted your rules. I ignored them really utterly. But Fair. the idea I like the idea of okay, fifty years from now, what are they gonna take away from you know these these films that almost made the list but not quite? And I think in my list, if you look at a lot of the, 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 the sort of the 11 through 20 in mine, 11 through 30, Black Klansman, Blind Spotting, The Hate You Give, If Beale Street Could Talk, we're all, you know, you're, you're looking at an image of America that is just distressingly corrosive. And even if these stories are set in the past, in the 70s, like Beale Street, you know, they're, they're talking directly to 2018. Mm-hmm. And put those up against something like uh, Fred Rogers in the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And you get this crazy yin-yang of American temperament. You know? And I think they'll be able to learn a lot about where we were as a country and where we were as, as a movie audience in this, in this year, in this hmm. uh, year that we, we can hardly see straight. Now, I always say when you're living in what feels like a very turbulent time in history, it's like you're looking at the Surratt painting uh, Sunday in the Park uh, from one inch away, and and you, you can't step back yet. You, all you see is the dots, and uh, I don't know. We'll see. Fifty mm-hmm. years from now, when we're all here, fifty years from now, yeah, surely <laughs> doing the uh, you know the Dick Van Dyke edition of this thing. We'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about it. I love it, Tasha. What about you? I mean, I sort of want to echo that in the sense that films like Tyrell and Monsters and Men and The Hate You Give are all kind of speaking to this particular moment, and. I did not ignore your rules. So to, to <laughs> narrow it down to one for me, it would it would be Black Panther. But for a very similar reason, what I see in all of these films is just an era where people are more and more realizing that there is an audience for black cinema. There's an audience for Mexican cinema. There's an audience for whatever cinema you want to reach out and tell very specific stories about different communities, sometimes fantasy communities inspired by real communities, sometimes real communities inspired by real tragedies. But in each case, there's just this this sense that for the first time, producers are realizing either, you know, we can step up and make stories about our own experiences, our own communities, our own worlds, or other producers are, are saying there's a market for these things. There's a market for these stories, no matter how specific or colorful or, or bizarre in the case of Black Panther, you know, we take these things to an elaborate fantasy level. There are people out there that are hungry for new stories, for new experiences, and for new perspectives. Black Panther is not going to be forgotten real soon because it was such a huge success. But 
as 3,000 more Marvel movies come out, I think it's going to just start looking like all the rest. It's just going to be part of this giant continuous narrative. To me, what I hope is not forgotten about that film is that they went to a black director to create something that was very significant and personal to him, even though it was still within the framework of, you know, this giant piece of superhero product Mm -hmm. stamped like so many others. I want to continue to see people like Ryan Coogler and you know, Ryan Johnson and just all of these creators that have done very specific, interesting indie work being tagged to bring their sensibilities into to bigger and interesting places. Now, I hope that Ryan Johnson doesn't get limited and can't make brick, that Ryan Coogler doesn't get limited and can't make Fruitvale Station. Like, I want them to continue their work. But I also just want this moment to be remembered as a place in time where people kind of figured out that there are a lot of stories in the world and it's much more interesting if we're telling a whole lot of them. Mm. 3,000 more Marvel movies. Tasha, I'm hoping that's an exaggeration. That's not really what we're looking at. You haven't seen the schedule through 2021. (laughs) I can't bear to look at that. That's just the next three years, man. It's a a stockholder's dream. The dystopia is Marvel and film spotting. (laughs) Perfect combination. We had to make room for that. It sounds like you're not on the list to go in tonight and see the next 14 like, no. there's a marathon tonight. They're all coming out this month. <laughs> I, I'm doing a – my daughter is making me do a somewhat mini marathon, but we're spreading it out about one every 10 days. That's more <laughs> my pace, okay? I'm barely surviving that. Wow. So I'm not going to take the time capsule approach quite so much uh, with my choice here. I'm looking more at my list and then the films that are further down it, and I think they probably will be forgotten. I'll mention two real quick. The first, maybe not entirely, but you mentioned it, Michael. Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Fred Rogers doc. It's just – it's especially comforting right now, but I think it will have eternal appeal that way. I mean, whenever you watch that, you're going to get some comfort from it. And another documentary that probably will be forgotten because it was sort of small, but just delightful is Tea with the Dames. Uh, it came out, uh, I think, late summer. It has Judy Dench, Joan Plowright, Maggie Smith, and Eileen Atkins commiserating about their lives and career, their shared lives and careers, really. And we played uh, the game, which dame are you behind the scenes on the show? Yeah. Decided I'm Dame Maggie Smith, Adam's Dame Eileen Atkins. So I'm hoping by the end of this show, listeners will choose, you know, determine who are Tasha and Michael's matches. (laughs) I like it. It's a fun little exercise. We did actually fit those descriptions perfectly. Sam was... Plowright. No, no, Joan Plowright was to a T. Yeah. There you go. I took a similar approach to Josh here, just looking at my list and thinking about movies that are smaller films and I think would be easily overlooked. And in fact, I'm pretty sure were overlooked by the four of us. I don't think they are going to come up in this two-part roundtable. One of them is Andrew Haig's Lean on Pete, which features a really great performance by Charlie Plummer there. He plays a teen who's living with his single dad when his single dad is home, and he ends up going to work on a ranch and caring for an aging racehorse who is named Lean on Pete. And the other pick is the experimental first-person documentary, Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun, from Travis Wilkerson, which is a film that was on my top five list of the films so far back in July. And I picked these two also because I think if you look at our lists, collectively, there are a lot of good movies about characters who are struggling on the fringes of society. Lean on Pete's definitely one of those. And then Michael and Tasha, you guys especially touched on those movies that deal with let's say, the racial strife and discord in our country's history. That's been a topic certainly this year. And Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun is this potent look at Travis Wilkerson's own family history investigating the events surrounding his great-grandfather, who back in the South in 1946 murdered a black man and got away with it. Mm. 
in the movie is Wilkerson's way of exploring that past and his family's guilt. And that's another theme I noticed this year. A lot of movies that seem to be trying to reckon with the past individually and collectively. I think we will get to a few of those. We are going to get into our list now with a little bit of help to get started. We like to have some special guests call in, share their insights, and we're going to hear from them throughout these two shows. We're going to start with someone already invoked by Tasha Robinson, actually, just a few moments ago. Someone who had a much quieter 2018 than he did a 2017. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Ryan Johnson. I'm calling from the set of Knives Out, the movie I'm shooting right now. We're in our final week. I want to call in with my top movie of the year. You know, it was another great year for movies. A uh, couple quick runners up. The favorite I thought was absolutely incredible. And also, sorry to bother you. I just thought it was extraordinary. But my favorite movie of the year was Roma. I've always been a big fan of Caron's work. But with this one, I just thought the way that the craft and what it was about and just the performances all built to such an extraordinary emotional experience. The type of thing you hope for every time you go into the theater. Anyway, a terrific year in movies, guys. Have a great holiday and a great New Year's. And I'll talk to you next year. So Ryan Johnson, the guy you may remember who directed the 2017 Star Wars film that all real Star Wars fans know is either the third or fourth best in the franchise. Actually, that's just a bit of provocative editorializing by our producer, Sam. But if, <laughs> if Sam's wrong, he's, he's close anyway. So he called us, as you heard from the set of his new movie. I had been following his Twitter feed and knew he was making this movie called Knives Out, but I hadn't actually looked at the description or the cast. Have you guys followed this at all? It's a modern day murder mystery in the classic Agatha Christie whodunit style. You've got a couple of the real stars of the 2018 movie year in it. Lakeith Stanfield from Sorry to Bother You, Tony Collette from Hereditary, the rest of the ensemble, Chris Evans, Daniel Craig, Michael Shannon, and Jamie Lee Curtis. Not bad. Comes out in 2019. So it's very much, yeah, very much looking forward to that from Ryan. And we thank him for his contribution. As always, Roma is assuredly going to get some love in part two of this countdown. Let's get into the list then. Part one of our countdown, we have 14 outliers, movies that made only one list with a couple of exceptions. We're not going to emphasize the ranking or really focus on going in order here. If you want to see exactly where we pick these, you can go to filmspotting.net and click on lists. We will have them all here. We are going to start it with The King of Wakanda and The King of the 2018 box office. Tasha mentioned it, but Black Panther, Michael, is your number 10 film of 2018. It was. And um, I'm, I'm always amazed that, to get email like I've, I've gotten on, you know, people love arguing with your lists. And uh, and that's why, you, that's why you write them. They're made to be argued with. But I got, uh, for putting Black Panther on my top 10 in the number 10 slot and putting Aquaman somewhere in the worst 10, <laughs> I, I, I forget. I, I took a vow to forget. Uh, <laughs> I just got called out by many people saying, you know, this is impossible. You cannot put one film on a worse list uh, that, that's in the same genre, basically, as, as a film you put in the top ten. And Did I just, they watch the films? I'm, well, I'm just thinking, you know... Adam, uh, always irrelevant. <laughs> always, I, I don't... As, as weary as I am of, of some of the superhero tropes at this point, if you, if you mush together DC and Marvel and, and anything else that sort of touches this genre... As weary as I am, the the best work still reminds you how much life there is in these extended universes. What a universe, 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 I, I, I guess, yeah. multiverse, yeah, multiverse, <laughs> the multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> 
In fact, I'm going to do the rest of the broadcast inverse. The, uh, take, cut, forget that. Forget that. That'll be too hard to pull up. Um, Black Panther for me really did for reasons Tasha just mentioned. You know, you have a real director with with real ideas and enough leeway, and you can tell, you know, that he had enough leeway to make it a little bit personal and a little bit idiosyncratic and also just very urgently part of, you know, it had one foot in Oakland, California and America today. And that's why the the kind of the kind of real steady payoffs and the glories visually and otherwise of Wakanda and just the best of the storytelling, it all made you feel like, okay, this this genre isn't dead yet. And to even think of that film in the same universe, singular universe, uh, as Aquaman or any of the kind of the, the movies you're weary of, it's just a reminder that, yes, the, these, are, these are still really worth our time. Well, Michael, Black Panther got one thing right that the superhero genre needs. And as much as I joked about it at the top, I do enjoy these films when they're done well. And Black Panther had a great villain, Michael B. Jordan's Eric Hillonger. Absolutely. And when you nail that part, it was my favorite sporting performance of the year. When you do that well, it goes a long way for the entire genre to work, and it certainly mm. did for Black Panther. Totally, totally. I mean, but, I mean, Killmonger like brings in all of these real world issues of inequity and racism. That like certainly Black Panther was not the most daring film of 2018 to contend with those issues, but seeing those issues brought in a real way into like these big escapist stories. Right feels daring like it feels like we're getting to a place where it's safer to talk about them in public which is such an important part of of actually dealing with them and the degree to which like that made the film relatable to a lot of people i think was really interesting and and really fulfilling yeah i think those oakland scenes that bookend the film they do a lot to ground the whole movie as you said michael but they also provide the foundation for what makes Killmonger such a compelling villain, because they show that he is driven more by pain than just seeking power or seeking revenge. And so you understand as a villain the injustice he thinks that he's avenging. I think that makes it so much more potent. I'm not sure that Kugler solves completely the problem with so many of these superhero movies, which is the unsatisfying action spectacle at the end. And we didn't talk about this during our review at all, but I don't think the movie really reckons with the horror of the tribes fighting each other and all of those deaths we get. There's one moment in the aftermath where Daniel Kaluuya surveys the battlefield and he has a look on his face that suggests, what have we done? But it's a split second and it's gone. And I think it's a big emotional hurdle to get over to get to the climax of the film. But yeah, love the world building, love Michael B. Jordan well, they, in that and, performance. And to even actually I, I define this film's idea of the true action climax as a two-person action sequence with mm-hmm. uh, everything going for it in terms of like like real ideas, real stakes, and not just a lot of blue digital effects, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and fireballs. It was not it was not about that. And I don't think Kugler's a first-rate action director. That's the, sort of the weird paradox about this. I think that he's just so good at everything else that y- you can get by with, you know, action sequences throughout that are pretty good and good enough for the sort of the fan base. But it's mm. it's everything that was going on on top of it that made that film more than just kind of a three-week phenomenon. We now go to a pair of horror films that are outliers. They are on Tasha Robinson's list. The Forum is Yours. 
Well, I'm not sure I can actually put these on my list now because Cloverfield Paradox was one of the worst movies I saw this year, and it's in the horror genre. So, like, <laughs> by those lights. It's a par- strange rule. It's a real paradox. <laughs> I mean, that's a serious Such paradox. Such a weird rule. Marabone was one of my favorite films of the year, and I, I think it also would go on any list of the most overlooked, uh, so, uh, not only the most overlooked films of the year, but the most unjustly overlooked films of the year. It's the directorial debut of Sergio G. Sanchez, who was the writer of of The Orphanage, one of my favorite horror films of all time. Yeah, great film. And it's sort of a gothic ghost story that develops into a character piece and after that develops into something entirely different. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite favorite genres, the horror film that you don't know what kind of horror film it is until you get to the end. Like, is this a ghost story? Is it a is it a period piece? Is it about the supernatural? Is it not? It's a series. The The film was released in America as Marabone and overseas as The Secret of Marabone. And there are a lot of secrets to this movie. So watching them unfold over time in just this beautiful, lushly shot environment, a lot of natural light, a lot of uh, close attention to the details of this decrepit old home way out in the country where these four young people are living and trying to cover up the death of their mother until the oldest of them can come of age and, and claim the house and keep them all together as a family. It's a very tense story. It's not entirely scary, except in, in a very few spaces where it is. It reminds me of get out just a little bit, mm. not so much in, in the racial overtones, but in the building tension and in the really intense dynamic performances that kind of shape the story. In the same sort of way, Gareth Evans' Apostle, which came out on Netflix, so I wasn't sure you were going to let me uh, let me do it, centers around a performance by Dan Stevens, who's one of my favorite actors at this point. And it also is kind of a gothic story. It uh, takes place on a Scottish island where a group of people have retreated to to form a kind of religious commune. And Dan Stevens' character heads out there to try to rescue his sister, who has been kidnapped and is being held hostage. It's initially a riff on the original version of The Wicker Man, and then it develops very rapidly into its own story. It starts in almost exactly the same place and then does something different with those narrative bones. But both of these stories are very heavy character pieces. Um, they're very much built on on key central performances. In Marabone, it's primarily George McKay as Jack, the oldest of the siblings, obviously an apostle, um, Dan Stevens. Both of them just giving these very vibrant, very intense, very personal performances. And the stories go to some scary places, go to some horrific places, in both cases just kind of about the the terrible things that human beings do to each other because of greed, because of selfishness, because of desire for power. But in both cases, they were just some of the most emotionally intense experiences that I had all year in a theater. Hmm. So both of them beautifully shot very exquisitely like textured. They're just not like anything else you would have seen on the screen this year. Even though I'm lumping them both in together, they're both very distinctive films. And that's what I I think most look for in cinema is an intense emotional experience I can get behind and something visual that's distinctive and memorable. It's something where the filmmaking really reminds me of what you can do with cinema. Hmm. To your point, Tasha, Marabone unfamiliar to me, still is, unfortunately. Apostle, I knew a little bit more about, probably just because of that Netflix exposure. And I, we never made any sort of formal announcement. I, we talked a little bit this year about Netflix titles mm-hmm. being eligible for our lists yeah. and top 10 consideration. There, there's just so much 
being made there and a lot of good stuff too that we didn't kind of want to close that door. So yes, completely eligible. Apostle number nine on your list, Marabone number eight on your list and two movies. I think all three of us here in the room otherwise have overlooked. I'm afraid so. Yeah, so we can move on though. Before we move on, I'm going to spare listeners the frustration of waiting through both parts of this extravaganza, wondering since Tasha put two horror films on her list, well, Hereditary surely is going to show up somewhere in the top five, right? And alas, it's not going to make any of our lists. Yeah. It was close for me. A second watch, and may have mentioned this on an earlier episode, a second watch did bump it off just because I, I struggled with that ending the first time around. And I do as well. It, it bothered me even a little bit more the second time. So I really still think it's a strong, strong film and like it a lot. And Ari Aster shows a ton of promise as a filmmaker. So I'm a big fan of it, but couldn't quite squeeze it out of my top 10. Same. Honorable mention? Yeah, Michael? it was it was in my 11 through 30 and it's I mean 30 was enough to come up with but uh, but yeah and it's and it, you know frankly if you look at all 20 of those it's it's almost as good as the top 10 stuff so For sure. yeah. yeah. same deal. I, I think the ending I, just literally you, gave it, you give it, yeah and it, it just steers in a direction that just it turned out to be to be really alienating and Kind of like, oh my God, this old thing again to, <laughs> to most of the potential audience. Right. And I think, but uh, even if it had a really dazzling bit of plotting at the end instead of that, I think the the utter cruelty of a lot of the pr- of, of the inherent premise of that thing would have just turned people away from it. It's not that kind of, you know, Get Out is the opposite film. It, it, it That delivered exactly what many different types of audiences wanted in whatever, however they defined, you know, two hours out, you know, two hour, a two hour good time at the film. Mm-hmm. And, and it did it without, without feeling like it was just a compromised focus grouped project. I didn't know so much have an, a problem with the ending of Hereditary as I had a problem with Hereditary being about four horror movies crammed together. And I think all of them were really distinctive good horror movies, but they all kind of got a little lost in the process. Yeah. There's some really, really strong performances, really strong moments, really terrifying moments. Mm. We might hear a little bit more about Hereditary in the second part for non-list reasons, given something that uh, you've got set up for us to do. So I won't get too much into that. But I, there were just times that I was like, all right, so it's it's a ghost story and a possession story and a haunted house story <laughs> and a death in the family story right. and the, a, a psychological woman disintegrating story and about eight more things, just a few too many things. I feel like Ari Aster kind of got that. I'm a first time filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so exactly, excited yeah. that this is going to happen. I got to fit in everything I've ever thought in case I never make another movie. <laughs> well, now he's going to get to make more movies. Right. So I'm hoping he can trim down and like focus on any of the really strong things he brought to the table. This With time. no pentagrams next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There up. is a lot going on in Hereditary <laughs> so for sure. Speaking of trim down and focused, that brings us to your number 10 film, Josh. Yeah, that's where I have Leave No Trace, which is definitely a quieter, uh, more subdued film. And, you know, I have it at number 10, which is such a tough spot because you're essentially the way I think about it is is selecting that film, but really just saying no to about six others that are at, at the same level. Yeah, if not more. I probably landed on Leave No Trace from Winter's Bone director Deborah Granick at this spot because I think it's the least 
likely movie to make its own case to be on a top 10 list. I mean, this is so quiet. It's so unassuming, yet really masterfully crafted in a lot of ways, just as masterfully crafted as something like Hereditary, just in ways that don't jump out at you. This is the story of a father and teen daughter who are living off the grid in a lush forest park outside of Portland, Oregon. And it's how their life gets upended. Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie, they're so good in the lead roles in this. Sorry for making you worry about me. If we had a phone, I could have called you. Always been able to communicate without all that. I think it might be easier on us if we try to attack. We're wearing their clothes, we're in their house, we're, we're eating their food, we're doing their work. We have adapted. The only place we can't be seen is in this house. We can still think our own thoughts. Like you said. So, yeah, for a movie that's that's willing to whisper and, and kind of demands that the audience lean into it, I'm surprised how long Leave No Trace has stuck with me as the year has gone on. I think it was a summer release, an early summer release even. It's it's just still there at the end of the year for me. So I've, I've got it at number 10. And it's great that writer-director Deborah Granick has gotten the kind of recognition from some of the critics groups that, you know, other people hadn't even really had her on a radar just in terms of the, the best piece of direction. That's really astute visual mood spinning and sort of, and sort of just how to sustain a, a, what is essentially a two-person story. And Ben Foster, they're both wonderful performances. Mm-hmm. Ben Foster is so much the Hollywood go-to for sort of sociopathic, psychopathic hotfoots. You know, yeah. he's right behind Michael Shannon in that regard. That <laughs> yeah, when, you're he, right. when you see a movie that, that is well-made in every respect and uh, and forces that act, requires that actor to kind of go to a much different place and they're fully up for it and really grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. You can tell every, every scene. Terrific. He just keeps getting better and better. The further he leaves that stuff behind, but there's still a hint of it here. You know, there's, there's a sense of danger to this father that I think is crucial as well yep. to that part. He, he is so good. Uh, another performance among my favorites of the mm. year. Yeah. There is something just broken fundamentally in that person that comes through. It doesn't matter if he's angry or frustrated or whatever emotion he's feeling. You can see him completely internalizing that at all times. And part of that performance enables what I think was just in a very low-key, steady, straightforward way, one of the most daring film endings I saw this year. Mm, one of the most out. unexpected that was great. and, yeah. and surprising and yet really exciting endings. And without the strength of that performance, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think it would have been satisfying. And instead, it, it becomes like a quiet inevitability. That's it. That's right. When we talked about it, I remember I said that it was inevitable and shocking at the same time. And it's rare when an ending can pull that off. We go on to another pick from Michael Phillips, the movie that's in his number nine slot, the latest from Argentinian director Lucretia Martel. Zama. With the Z, okay, just like Liza. It's a, this is a, from Argentine filmmaker Lucretia Martel, as you say. It's a historical mirage, I think I'd call it, about an officer who's devoted to the Spanish crown waiting to leave 18th century Paraguay and waiting and waiting. This is as much about waiting as Beckett's Waiting for Godot was about waiting. It's also got a wonderful lead performance from the actor Daniel Gamenez Cacho as this sort of hapless uh, factotum, just just kind of caught in the bureaucracy of where he is in this kind of colonialist nightmare. And uh, I, among other things, uh, I wrote about this in the Tribune, but it's got probably my favorite single opening shot of the year where he's he's on the beach 
sort of pose. It's as, as if he's posing for the for the court painter that is not there. You know, he's <laughs> he's got his tricorn hat on. He's got his stance just so, looking like you know the you know the mighty explorer. You know, in the strange new land of heathens. And you know, among other things, I think the film has a lot of really droll fun with this folly of colonialism and really trying to kind of subvert this heroic notion of what colonialism really means. And I found that by the end, I really had, in a kind of a wonderful way, unexpected way, I had become, uh, you know, really transported by this, the whole vision of it. And and when you describe it as a, a movie about a guy waiting to leave and not being able to, that's why I got the mail I got. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I never went to this. I, I haven't heard of it. I'm never going. And, you know, I, 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 it's very angry people. I've never gotten angrier mail from people who never saw yeah, the film. the pre-viewing <laughs> complaint. That's yes, great. Yes, exactly. But but all I can say is, you know, it's, you know, I wouldn't put it on at 930 after a couple of beers. No. But I would say that about a lot of films I loved this right. year. I share this pick with you, Michael. I really loved Zombies. Well, I have it at number five, as a matter of fact. Historical Mirage, that's a great way to describe it. I've been going with Colonial Ghosts story. You know, it, it is <laughs> a tale of this man who's just haunted by his place in history. He's not sure what to make of it, even though he's clearly part of the problem, too. The problem is his as well. And yeah, in our new Argentine Cinema Marathon, we did Adam on the show 2017, I think it was, uh, we were able to watch two films by Lucretia Martel, La Cienega and The Headless Woman. And I think both of those trace the malaise that um, that's among Argentina's bourgeoisie and how the contemporary spiritual state of the country is linked to that colonial past in particular. So Zama is a film that it doesn't hint at that sort of past for South America. It's actively exhuming it and and unleashing all these ghosts on the screen for us to kind of just be there and be a part of. It's As you mentioned, it's dryly funny, too. I mean, great performances. I don't want to mischaracterize it as some sort of horror movie at all or somber picture. I mean, there are a lot of laughs in this, uh, even though at the same time it, it's haunting as well. Yeah, well, well it, 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 oh. At some point, all you can do is laugh at the folly of his predicament. You yeah. have to. And we're so used to, I think, we're, we're attuned to receiving any historical drama in any language about any culture in in a in a automatically serious somber way and and any film that comes along as maybe as flagrantly as the favorite yeah that, i know, was just thinking that, about the that, favorite that, as that you were just, describing it kind of zama. Ter- tears all out a new one and then but zama's much subtler and, and quieter about it but i know I, I just hope that a few people take a chance on it and discover it and maybe it'll be for them maybe not but uh, but yeah. I, I think it'll it'll connect with some people i love what you said about the opening shot because it does suggest a stature that we come to realize if it exists at all it's only in his imagination right, right, it, right it, the whole right. rest of the film is going to belie right. That moment of of grandeur there for him. And I will say about Cacho as well, it's the best eye performance of the year. I think hands down, (laughs) it's remarkable how many different ways he silently expresses anger, frustration, exhaustion, resentment, and sometimes hope. Sometimes there is that, that little bit of hope every time he has to suck up to that endless parade of governors. And certainly, I think you can read the film. He's an agent of colonialism, and he reflects its opportunism and its Impressiveness, but by the end, he is in his own way a victim of it too, and it's sort of plotting indifference. That I'm glad you mentioned his eyes. That slight panic that's always yes. there yes. Is, is part of the comedy. He's, a, he's just a, he's a classic middle manager. You yeah, know? That's it. <laughs> it's just a, in a different time and place. Well, that brings us to my number nine pick, and it's a movie that we didn't get to discuss in full on the show. I didn't see it when it was originally released in theaters. Only you, Josh, recommended it, and it's Can You Ever Forgive Me, Mariella Heller's follow-up to 2015's 
film spotting golden brick finalist, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. And I do think there's a real clear connection between the two films, obviously totally different perspectives, one about a 15-year-old girl, one a 51-year-old woman, and a 51-year-old woman who has already made a living as a writer up to this point. But both are true stories of female artists finding their voices. In the case of Can You Ever Forgive Me and Lee Israel, she's a celebrity biographer played by Melissa McCarthy. Her career is completely stalled. It takes imitating other voices and committing fraud to eventually get to that discovery point. And I actually just read this for the first time the other day that there was a previous version of this that was going around and was trying to get made that starred Julianne Moore and Chris O'Dowd. I think working from the same script or a version of it from Nicole Holofcener and Jeff Witte obviously didn't get made. Heller and the new cast came on board. And look, Julianne Moore is amazing, but I can't imagine anyone doing this role better than Melissa McCarthy does because she's basically a misanthrope. She has enormous contempt for almost every single person she knows or meets. What does she say at one point? She's a 51-year-old woman who likes cats better than people. And that certainly comes through. But I think she gets away with it because she's so sharp-witted that you can't begrudge whatever horrible thing she just said or did. And I think that humor... It's surely there in the script, but without McCarthy's instinctive cleverness and that delivery and timing, maybe we as viewers would only have contempt for her. I think it's the best work she's done also because of the vulnerability that she brings to Lee Israel. She's headstrong and she's self-righteous, but she shows just enough cracks in the armor for us to realize that it's masking a lot of insecurity, a lot of shame, and a lot of loneliness. Maybe the best scene in the movie is the dinner date she has with oh, one of the booksellers, Dolly Wells, Great yeah. scene. is the actress uh, who plays Anna. And the subtle ways that McCarthy sabotages <laughs> what could potentially be the start of something wonderful. You just get those flickers where you even get the sense that she catches herself doing it. She's aware that yeah. she's sabotaging it and she can't stop it. And it's not because she'll end up being disappointed, but because she'll end up being the one who disappoints. I think that's the way she probably frames it in her mind. Haven't even mentioned Richard E. Grant as her friend and partner in crime. So much fun. The the guy who his response to every day is, let's find a way to make a little money so we can gamble, shop, or drink. Who doesn't want a friend <laughs> like that in their lives? And Brandon Trost, the cinematographer, the warmth he gets from every single light in these bookstores and libraries and bars. There's a shot in one of the dives early on where the snow is falling outside and it looks absolutely majestic. So for a lot of reasons, I really went for Can You Ever Forgive Me? I'm not going to take you up on that being her best work because The Nines still exists. Haven't seen it. Continues to be one of my favorite all-time movies as well as my favorite Melissa McCarthy performance. But yes, I can't imagine Julianne Moore in this role. I no. mean, it's it's so keyed to Melissa McCarthy's like particular brand of like outsized sardonicism and vulnerability, like the vulnerability that even in her slapstick roles, there's almost always a scene where she breaks down and you, and you see like the, the bleeding heart underneath the cracks of this very hard surface. And here she gets to do it finally again in a dramatic role. And it's, it's just kind of such a relief after seeing her spinning up like all of these fart joke centric mm-hmm. roles that just that don't take advantage of what a, a tremendous actress she is. Yeah. Richard E. Grant in this film, though, is, is heartbreaking. Yeah. He's so good. He and the, the relationship between them is just so satisfying on a, the fundamental level of you absolutely understand why these people would push people away from them, like why it is understandable. And why they need each other. Yeah, yeah, that they've they've become to these marginalized places in society. And yet 
you know, they're they're able to find something in each other. And it's just a beautiful thing. That's even leaving out the degree to which this goes in an almost heist movie like direction. That's just very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you I adore, even higher, Michael. Well, I, mean, I adore this film. It was my number three this year, and I think it's a mark of a, how well a film is actually working that the scenes that are kind of the most frankly invented. I mean, there was a, a real relationship between the characters played by uh, McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, but it's a very, very small part of the book this film was based on. And this is essentially the screenwriter's invention and idea to kind of foreground this relationship and kind of imagine what it might, what the dynamic might might have been like. And those scenes play just as authentically, just as honestly. They're really funny. And then right when they need to be, without going for the throat in any kind of cheap way, they're, they're extremely moving. And I, I just – this film really – Really put a spell on me, and I love the music by the, this this very kind of slow key jazz score by the director's brother Nate Heller. There really isn't a single uh, aspect of the film that, that doesn't feed into the others. I, I'm I'm very I'm very keen on more people seeing it in yeah. 2019. Lee Israel, it's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? Slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there too. That's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. I'm glad you mentioned the cinematography too, Adam, because it's it's a touch that I mean these are really musty bookstores we're mostly in in the dead of a New York City winter, okay, and yet it manages to make them authentic, inviting, but also still you could smell the must, yeah, and that perfectly captures the people we're spending time with and their relationship, how there's elements of all that wrapped up together. You can just tell Richard E. Grant smells musty. Yeah, you know it. You know it because of, <laughs> but partly because of how he's lit. But the and teeth the... look perfect. It's a dead giveaway, <laughs> as he says. I love that. Non-musty teeth. <laughs> all right, Josh, we go to you for your number nine film. Yeah, at number nine, I have Hale County this morning, this evening. It's one of the nominees for our Golden Brick Award this year. We'll get to the finalists later in the show. Uh, this strangely compelling experimental documentary that really showcases what an artist's eye can see, even in the most everyday of settings. So the setting here is the Alabama County of the title, and the artist is Ramel Ross, a first-time filmmaker who moved there to coach basketball and teach photography. Consistently throughout, Ross finds an interesting place to put the camera to alter not only what we see, but how we see it. I mentioned a couple of examples when... I recommended Hale County this morning, this evening on the show earlier, but here's just one more. There's this really cheeky shot of a birthday party where the balloon happens to be floating in the room to obscure the face of a guest. So from our vantage point, he just kind of looks like his head is a giant expressionless emoticon. That's probably (laughs) one of the more humorous images we get, but uh, that's just how Ross sees things a little differently than you would if you yourself just walked right into the room. Hmm. And the whole goal of this project is to have us look, in this case, at an often stereotyped community where uh, amongst uh, southern rural African-Americans from a surprising vantage point. And uh, essentially, Ross is using the camera to artfully undercut any preconceptions that might be there. And I think that's an experience that we can probably 
all benefit from. I certainly did watching this documentary. It's a, a little hard to find, but if it sounds like something you're at all intrigued by, I'd really encourage you to check it out. Hale County this morning, this evening. I've got it at number nine. One of my real regrets. And Josh, you're the only one, I think, in the room who can speak on that film, unfortunately. So we're going to go to Tasha and the movie that is your number seven of the year. So this film, I think, speaks to the degree to which, especially I think for a film critic who sees a lot of movies, expectation plays a really large part in a lot of how you react to a film. I walked into Jonah Hill's directorial debut mid-90s kind of dreading it a little bit because I knew it was about a subject that I have no inherent interest in, you know, the, the kind of the, the skate punk community and how uh, important and supportive it is for, for the kids who are in it. And I walked out of it just with my mind blown. I was drawn so much into what he does with the characters. Like this is a community that he's personally familiar with, that, that speaks to him, that he has a history with. And it winds up, mid-90s winds up being a very personal story that is not Jonah Hill's story. I think what strikes me about it, apart from uh, the the mostly amateur actors who give just a tremendously convincing, lived-in, like believable performances, is the degree to which, you know, like m- most of the kids that this movie focuses on, are coming from houses of neglect or abuse. They're trying to find who they are. They're trying to find like a little way to connect with other people, and you can feel for them. You can empathize with them, each of them individually, because they're so well drawn, while still being horrified about everything they say and do. Hmm. You know, they're they're growing up on the streets. <laughs> I mean, one of them has a a nickname that everybody refers to him by that can't be repeated on the air. Like they just they live in this world of profanity and like of emotional denial of like minor violence and and just this kind of like masculine macho resentment of everything and everyone around them. And you can see them carefully inculcating each other with all of these beliefs. You know, you don't show pain, you don't show emotion, you don't acknowledge what you feel to each other. And at the same time, every bit of it is so understandable, so keenly emotionally felt. And we'll get into this a little when we talk about Minding the Gap, which explores some of the same territory from a documentary point of view. But it is fascinating to me how well this movie navigates the dangerous and difficult area between kids who feel things very deeply and have no verbal or emotional vocabulary to express what they're thinking and feeling and so express it physically. The skating in this film is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. But it's mostly just in those performances and in this very convincing story it tells of this one kid learning what this community is and learning how to navigate it kind of moving past other kids to become a little bit of a superstar in it and what that ends up meaning to him and his family and the family he creates. It's a film that we were slated to discuss on the show and our wonderful producer who always has the best instincts talked us out of it but I'm, I'm blaming him for it but actually it was based on the fact that this is a fairly divisive movie we were seeing a lot of reviews at the time from critics like you Tasha we respect who really went for it and then others we really respected who didn't go for it at all it's really split a lot of critics and film spotting being such a stranger to controversy yes. I don't I don't know how you possibly things were going so well this year we thought why mess with yeah. it now <laughs> exactly I noticed that neither of you has any like bruising this year no 
last year, no. last year there was a there were, there might have been some crutches. There might have been some casts oh, when we, we should settle the three billboards fiasco. We should, yeah. <laughs> we're glad the two of you came back after having to witness that. Quite Are you frankly, kidding? this year I was taking bets. <laughs> yeah, she's she's going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, I know this year everyone Josh. will be. I think in honor of mid nineties, we should settle all future debates between you two with longboards. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, we. I am down. There's, there's a nice Sounds long great. run yeah, in this yeah. studio. We could we, we could get a ramp in here. All right, eight movies down. We have six left in this outliers portion. Yeah, strong batch of titles so far. Let's take a quick break, though. We're going to name our Golden Brick finalists when we come back. Three films are up for the award to be announced at our upcoming live show. Then it's more of our outliers. Yes, Tasha has another pick. Adam and I haven't seen to further expose us as frauds. As we head into the break, part of our annual tradition here, we get a best film music of 2018 pick from friend of the show, Sam Smith. He's a Nashville-based musician and poster designer. His soundtrack show, OST, is archived at mixcloud.com slash OSTFM. And you can view his posters at samsmith.net. See, it's a play on words, Sam Smith, S-A-M-S-M-Y-T-H. Net. Among his favorites this year was the score for Lee Chong Dong's Burning by composer Lee Sung Hyun, who goes by the name Moog. This is Burning. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you in part by Film Spotting listeners, including Dolly. Thank you so much, Dolly, for the contribution and the very nice note you sent. And Alec in Tel Aviv, who writes. Hey, Adam and Josh, I've been listening to this awesome podcast for so long now, practically from the very early days back when it was still cool to own an iPod Nano. To be honest, I'm actually a bit embarrassed this is my first donation, but as they say here in Israel, better late than never. Keep on doing what you guys are doing so well, and do feel free to drop me a line if you ever come to visit Tel Aviv. I'd love to invite you over for a few beers and chat about my film spotting faves. So next live show, next January, Tel Aviv. It's got to be better weather in Tel Aviv. It has to be, right? Thanks to Alec and Dolly and to all of our monthly donors. You are the lifeblood of the show and really do keep us doing what we're doing. If you're looking, though, for a no-cost way to support the show, take a second, give us a rating or review on iTunes. That really does help us reach new listeners. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Daniel Nava with Chicago Cinema Circuit, and I'm checking in with my favorite film of 2018. If you asked me yesterday, my choice would have been Andrew Bujelski's Support the Girls. Uh, tomorrow, it probably would have been Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. And on the weekend and every other Thursday, Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. But today, my choice is Paul Schrader's First Reformed. There's a litany of reasons why I love the film, from its numerous influences of Bresson, Bergman, and Dreyer, to Schrader's delicate scripting, which achieves this timely and timeless quality. And there's, of course, Ethan Hawke's performance, which, along with Schrader's direction, feels like a culmination of two entire careers. This is a film that haunted me with every passing day and every passing month. And for a film about time and the finite nature of it, I think that's pretty important. Thanks, guys. Have a good year. 
one of my favorite Chicago critics, Daniel Nava, with the classic Adam Kempinar cheat squeezing three picks, actually four picks, into his 2018 (laughs) voicemail. And yes, a couple of those titles will definitely be coming up on part two of our top 10 show. That will come next week. We're going to return to our outlier picks here in just a moment and announce the finalists for the 2018 Golden Brick Award. But first... We do have a little bit of business to take care of. If you go to filmspotting.net and click on events, that's where you can get information about Chicago area movie passes we have to give away. Right now, we've got a run of engagement set of passes to a couple of Christmas Day releases. You can see Adam McKay's Vice, the movie about former VP Dick Cheney with Christian Bale, Sam Rockwell, Amy Adams, and Steve Carell. And If Beale Street Could Talk, the new one from Barry Jenkins, reviewed very favorably on last week's show. A movie... That's not, sadly, going to be reviewed very favorably on this show. My guy, Adam McKay, his latest vice. Not a fan. You were not a fan. I have yet to see it. Yeah. I don't think we're probably going to devote a whole lot of time to that film, which also, in its own way, is divisive, I would say. I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter who are coming to the defense of the film Vice. It's taking a little bit of a beating out there, it seems, by critics. It may just depend on whether you lived through it. Uh, in a politically aware way, and whether you can can take that period as humor. Yeah. Like for, for a lot of people, it's way too close and way too relevant to right now to accept the, the level of humor in the film. I think Christian Bale is inevitably going to come up in the most actor of the year award again mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the amount of makeup he's wearing and how he disappears into the Dick Cheney role. But that film left me very tired. Yeah, me as well. We also have another giveaway, which you can find all the details about over at that events page. Yeah, filmspotting.net slash events. You'll find the info for our Mary Queen of Scots giveaway. This is the new period drama starring Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. The giveaway includes lots of stuff, um, lots of cool stuff. A couple of sets of different playing cards you could win, some English breakfast and Scottish breakfast mm. teas. When that you're doing your dress right up, up my tea alley. with the dames, Josh, this, yeah. all of these cards and teas. We're doing, hey, we're doing family delightful. Christmas tea at the Drake in a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know if these teas can live up to that, but sounds great to me. There are also paper hand fans. So, yeah. All sorts of prizes, part of this Mary Queen of Scots giveaway. So do head over to filmspotty.net slash events if you want a shot at winning that. I would pay to see you using a Queen Elizabeth I hand fan. I'll bring it to the Drake. Can we make that happen? I'll bring it to the Drake. That's social media gold. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, also on that events page, there is all the info you need and a link to order tickets to the 2018 Film Spotting Wrap Party. Hopefully you will not have had enough of the four of us because all four of us will be there. It's Friday, January 11th at the Logan Center for the Arts on the University of Chicago campus. If you are considering making the trip from out of town, maybe you need a little extra encouragement. Coming for Film Spotting isn't enough alone. How about the fact that the Music Box that weekend is playing Alfonso Cuaron's Roma in 70 millimeter. 70 millimeter. So we, shot, we shot digitally, as it's been pointed out to me a million times on Twitter, it's been shot, it was shot digitally on 65 millimeter, but shown on film in 70. It's it's going to be the best. Everybody who's, who, who's seen it on Netflix and wondered what the hell the fuss was about should probably take another little look at it. Yeah. 
At the Music Box. Yeah, you might even have time to finish our live show if we stop talking at some point early in the <laughs> evening. And then you can go see Roma on the big screen as you should. It happens to be playing several showings a day that same weekend as our live event. All right, let's get to those Golden Brick finalists. To help us get into that conversation, here's a best of 2018 voicemail from the winner of the 2015 Golden Brick Award for Tangerine. That would be director Sean Baker. Sean, of course, also the director of one of the best films of 2017, The Florida Project. Speaking of top 10 shows, The Florida Project was Adam's number two that year, my number three. Michael, you had it there at number nine. Here's Sean. Hello, everybody. Sean Baker here. It's great to be back on Film Spotting. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And congratulations, guys, on another wonderful year of podcasting. So my top three for 2018, in no particular order, actually, because I'm still actually, I don't, I don't know which one I like better of the three. So in no particular order, the first one is Border by Ali Abbasi, the wonderful Danish-Swedish film that uh, just uh, is there's just so much to take from this movie. First off, it's extremely entertaining and witty and funny, but it also it's sweet. And also it's just it's just tackling a ton of themes and issues. And it's not in your face about them. There's something to be deciphered. And I really appreciate that and uh, just love it. I wish it got more attention. My second uh, Vox Lux. I think that Brady Corbett really did something special with this film and it's just bold and different and he doesn't he doesn't care about being different he wants to be different you know that's the great thing that's what defines a good filmmaker you don't want to be the same and uh i just oh my god the cinematography by low crawley is just every frame is gorgeous uh, so bravo to him and this one is one that i feel as if i'm the only champion of, and I don't know why, because it's so great. Let the Corpses Tan, the thriller from France and Belgium, and the directors, H- Helene Collat and Bruno Ferzani. Forgive me, guys, I just slaughtered your names, but you're wonderful filmmakers, and this film is just a delight. It's so fun, so stylistic. These guys have a real signature, and you know what? It's just such a gorgeous movie. So highly recommend checking that out because I know not many people have. And uh, one last thing I want to say, I'm on Letterboxd and you can find me on Letterboxd and you can see all the stuff I've I've uh, seen all year. And sometimes I comment on them and sometimes I don't. It's primarily it's not to rate films. It's just to log them. It's a cool platform that sometimes gets mean, sometimes gets freaking mean, I must say. But uh You can't mind the haters, right? All right. Anyway, congrats, guys, on another year. I love you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. I very much appreciate Sean Baker's filmmaking. I also very much appreciate his passion for filmmaking, as I think you heard there in his inability to target just one of his favorite movies of the year. I'm going to say I definitely would not push people to see Border unless I knew a little something about their personal tastes. It's certainly what I was saying earlier in the show about seeing something on screen that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. That is Border. You're, you're, you're definitely going to go into that film, not have any idea what you're watching for a while. And then once you figure out what you're watching, still going to be just surprised at every other scene by the fact that you're seeing on screen what you're seeing on screen. <laughs> it is a remarkable movie. 
it is not a movie for all tastes, but yeah. it is extremely different in a way that's pretty exciting. Well, I'm glad Sean mentioned Letterboxd as well because he is a great follow there, and that's a great platform that I know Josh and I are both on as far as logging films and Tasha as well. Michael will work on you maybe here at some point. Uh, buy me another few weeks out of the 52, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out. There you though. go. To be entirely honest, Letterboxd actually saves me a huge amount of time, uh, especially at the end of the year. Yeah. Like, you, you really don't have to take the time to review everything everything you watch, but logging it and maybe giving like the slightest impression of it helps me immensely when it's the end of the year and I'm trying to remember what I saw in January, February, March. What does logging mean? Like, 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 just, just like lumber? lumber? Like I literally, timber? I saw this film on this date. On this date. Three and a half stars. Oh, okay. okay. It can be as simple as you want it. Okay. So yeah, so it doesn't I, have to take a lot of time. And Sean uses it that way. He logs everything he sees and he watches a ton of films, even logs where he saw it. Wow. So, you know, exactly what theater or whether or not he watched mm. it at home, what country he's in, he logs it over there at Letterboxd. There are also a ton of film critics on Letterboxd, so it's actually a really concise way of kind of like getting the zeitgeist on a film. So I can't, I can't afford not to be on Really? That's you what we're can't. saying. Like we spend kind most of, of our time on Letterboxd talking about you and wondering where you are. <laughs> nice. It would kind of spoil things if you joined. So. <laughs> this commercial for Letterboxd brought to you by our top 10 films of 2018. Sean's picks there, all three of them probably could have qualified as golden brick candidates. You've got a second feature in Border, a second feature in Vox Lux, and the directors of Let the Corpses Tan have been making films since 2009, but they would be brand new to us had we seen <laughs> that film. So that oh, counts I, I as well. Let the Corpses Tan. We're not going to agree on that one. We're not going to agree? No? You no. and Sean are going to get into a debate on Letterboxd, Take it to Letterboxd. Or a fist fight. <laughs> Off to Letterboxd. The Golden Brick is our annual award we've been giving out since 2009, named for one of the first films we actively championed on the show, Ryan Johnson's debut film, Brick, which came out in 2005. Josh, do you want to share the criteria? Yeah, essentially, as you were just mentioning, we are looking for a film that's made by a new or emerging filmmaker. And generally, that's also not going to be a mainstream movie or at least a highly publicized one. For example, the highest grossing Brick nominee this year made about $2 million and played on fewer than 300 screens. So smaller films here, but ones that do show a clear directorial vision or artistic ambition, trying something new and different, and also, you know, protocol. One of us, Adam or I, has to recommend or review it on the show. Sometimes Sam has chimed in with something he's seen as well that mm -hmm. he thinks would qualify. So last year's winner was Columbus, came from director Koganada. And then in 2016, the winner was The Fits from director Anna Rose Homer. Here, both, here. both great films. And yeah, our shorthand for The Golden Brick is our favorite overlooked film of the year. The winner is selected by us and a committee. Actually, Michael's on it. Tasha's on it and the rest of the Next Picture Show crew and our friends from Film Spotting SVU. The show may be gone, but they still participate. We still keep them in we our still hearts. still talk to them. Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer. Also, listener vote does matter. This is where you come in. The Brick panel over the weekend narrowed down our finalists. I think we had 12 films in the running, and we narrowed it down to three that earned by far the most votes. And they're the ones that you, the Film Spotting listener, and everyone here at this roundtable will be voting on, Josh, those titles are. We have Bing Lu's Minding the Gap. This is the Rockford, Illinois set skateboarding doc that regular listeners have heard us talk about several times over the year. It did debut this summer, and right now it's streaming on Hulu. Another finalist is Chloe Zhao's The Rider. This is a South Dakota set drama with non-professional actors who are playing versions of themselves. That includes the lead, Brady Jandro, who Adam and Sam agree anyway, gives one of the best performances of the year. 
This is also available to rent on most platforms. And finally, this one kind of snuck in late here, but got a lot of support as the voting went down. It's Shirkers, directed by Sandy Tan. So the description of the film on IMDb refers to it as a kaleidoscopic punk rock ghost story. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm just going to have to take that at face value. But Tan's documentary is about her feature debut, which was shot in the early 90s, then went missing for 20 years. It was the subject, Tasha, of a recent Next Picture show pairing. Sorry, I haven't listened to that episode yet, Tasha, because I haven't seen Shirkers. It is currently streaming on Netflix, so that'll be easy for me to catch up with. Yeah, it will. And I think that may have been part of the reason why it ended up as a finalist. The hardest thing with these movies, we are going for the overlooked movie, but sometimes they're overlooked even by one of us. They're hard to see simply because they're playing on so few screens or maybe they're not yet on any streaming platforms. But Shirkers, I think, is going to be a fairly popular pick with film spotting listeners because of it being on Netflix and obviously being widely available. So we've got one straight up documentary and a pair of other films that mix documentary and fiction filmmaking in very different but equally compelling ways. And we now implore you to help us choose the winner of the 2018 Golden Brick. First, of course, if you haven't seen the movies, Josh has some homework to do here. We encourage you to watch the three films. Then go vote at filmspotting.net. You can find the poll on our Bricks page, filmspotting.net slash Bricks, or it will also be right there on the main page of our website. If you leave some feedback in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We will announce the winner of the 2018 Golden Brick Live at our wrap party on January 11th. Now that that business is taken care of, let's get back to our top 10 countdown and our next set of outlier picks with this note from listener Dan Roberts. What happens when an auteur brings his or her singular vision to a piece of pulpy genre entertainment? Well, let's see. North by Northwest, The French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, The Dark Knight, and Widows. Yes, I would put Steve McQueen and Gillian Flynn's exceptional film up against any of those masterpieces. Every shot of this film is so carefully considered that McQueen can, for example, give us a shot of Viola Davis dropping her dog off at doggy daycare and put it into a dazzling panorama that injects a moment of humor and heart into a bleak landscape, while also reminding us of the class issues that run throughout the excellent script, all from a single non-moving camera shot from inside a car which is to say nothing of the more commonly praised sequences that will no doubt stick in my head for a long time to come. This is the best time I've had at the movies since another Chicago-based genre masterpiece, the aforementioned Dark Knight, and I can't wait to see it again. Wow, that is that's the highest praise yes, I've ever actually, actually ever heard <laughs> <laughs> for for a film I lo- I loved and and you know, it's my number 6. It's uh it's a picture that I knew in, right away would have a harder time than it should finding the audience it deserves. You know, I, I think this is the one where the studio never knew how to market it. They were nervous about how to juggle this, what's basically an ensemble picture dealing with, you know, seven, eight, ten characters of, of roughly equal weight. And uh, I think coming off Ocean's 8, uh, a much more lighthearted female-driven heist film, they were nervous and stupid, frankly, about about uh, courting uh, comparisons with uh, th- this very different sort of heist picture. I don't know. Whatever whatever the reasons it didn't quite get the audience it deserved. I, I think I think time will be good to it. I think Steve McQueen, I think most impressively, really changed his visual style to suit this material. This is not really like the other McQueen pictures visually. It's also 
not McQueen dumbing down or just turning into kind of a generic action director mm-hmm. because it would be easier. I, I think it's it's the freshest use of Chicago locations I've seen in probably 10 years. And it does. It, it, with a very light hand, considering it's dark material and heavy material in many ways, it, it touches on you know class and race and also touches on maybe simpler pleasures of just you know really inventive plotting you know it's it's a little overpacked i think that that threw some people i even got lost a little bit on a couple story points the second time through i'm easily confused but uh <laughs> it's a picture that i was happy to see a second time and and i think um it's a textbook example of uh, of of really good artists all up and down uh, taking the material just seriously enough yeah it's top 20 for me I don't think you're easily confused. I think you were noticing things that, that maybe you're having so much fun the first time through, they don't come up as much. On a second viewing for me, because we did cover it on Next Picture Show, I saw a lot more like plot questions, things that really didn't add up. And when we talked about it on the Next Picture Show, we kind of played a game of me demanding that Genevieve and Scott explain plot points to me. <laughs> just just why would they do this? What Why was this happening? Hmm. But that said, boy, I, I feel like the, the pieces of Widows don't fit together for me well enough for it to have made my list in a really strong year. Hmm. But it was one of the most fun times I had at the, at the theater this year. And those pieces that don't fit together are still like individually just, just character segments and scenes, some of the best constructed and best acted yeah. things I saw at the I theater. I agree with you on that. Absolutely. It is a case where when we saw it, we raised some of those same questions. There are some plot points and some motivations that even at this point right now, I'm not sure I completely follow. I haven't given it a second chance. But I think for the most part, that Gillian Flynn screenplay and dialogue crackles and McQueen makes every confrontation scene a really compelling tug of war. That whole movie is about power in every frame. And it's a top 20 film for me because it's not only a lot of fun, it's just one of the 2018 movies I'm most eager to rewatch. If I could go home right now and watch any film again, I would probably put Widows in. And the performances are a big part of it as well. I was actually rewatching a few clips in preparation for this. And there's one scene in the garage late in the film where they're going through some of the the plotting of this heist. And Elizabeth Debicki gives Viola Davis a shoulder shrug that I think lasts 10 seconds on screen. It's just, it's just amazing the way those, those women in that scene can, can control that scene uh, just through their body language. They're all really great. I think Flynn's got something as a writer, too. I mean, he, she got co-writing credit with McQueen, mm-hmm. uh, but she's got something, especially Flynn, has what you cannot teach a screenwriter, which is how to make a whole screen full of characters almost equally intelligent in totally different ways. And so you don't have a lot of obvious patsies or idiots. Uh, and, and then the scenes are, are there, therefore much more stimulating, even if it's kind of familiar, you know, worlds we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, you cannot teach that. And, you just, and she's got that really vinegary, nasty sense of humor that just works with this genre terrifically well. Solved our problem. What's this? This is Belle. She's fast, she's smart, and she can drive. Come on, we can't do this, the three of us. We need a driver. This is not your place. Please ask her to leave. I'm standing here. You can talk to me. I don't know you. You don't have to. I'm happy to leave right now. Wait, we need a driver. Your girl's happy to split your cut? Split our cut? It's equal or nothing. You vouch for her? I don't require a vouch. You're gonna need another gun. I got my own. You need to watch how you talk to me. If you're in, we need to get you started right away. 
for me with Widows, uh, it was some of the formal choices McQueen made that were really the highlight. We talk about at our live show, we have best opening scene as one of our categories. And in the running for me is that heist, not only for the thrills and camera placement of the action itself, but the way he intercuts it with scenes of each of the women at home, establishing their relationships with the men involved in the heist and just gets us the whiz bang right into not only story, but also action really beautifully. Hmm. Well, Dan, the listener, I think, referred to it as a pulpy genre film. Does that work at all with the movie we're going to transition into? One unseen by myself and my co-host, Tasha's doing it to us yet again. Your number five film of the year, Bad Times at the El Royale. It'd be if if trailers for these films didn't exist, I could probably get away with just making up titles and bringing them in. And uh, oh, one of my favorite films for the year was Three Flanges and a Leaf Bach. And just like watching your faces as you you all feel guilty for I, having not seen it. I caught that one. It was great. <laughs> And, and that's, that's all that's required here. All you need to say, yeah, it was really great. The performances were excellent. Exactly. You'll be hearing a lot of note flipping, you know, like, oh, did I see that film? What was it called? Tuesday night on Navy Pier? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So Bad Times at the El Royale was not on my radar uh, because it looked so much like the 2003 thriller Identity, which if you remember that film and it's it's one of the most idiotic endings of all time. It's a film about a bunch of strangers who all have colorful stories and don't want to reveal them and they all end up at a hotel together and it just looked bad. And then my husband went to see it and he came back and he said that is one of my favorite films of the year. Do you want to come see it again with me tonight? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he, he was he was that sold on it. We did not see it that night. We saw it the next night, I think. But wow. Okay, so this movie is constructed like a play. It's a very formalistic screenplay that goes in and out of a bunch of different stories, interweaving them in such a way that first you see a bunch of characters and then bit by bit you start getting both their, the backstories that led them to this strange hotel on the California-Nevada border and you see them moving forward in time and then realize that they're entangled in ways that get like very, very tense and exciting. And you go back in time to see how other characters in the same space are interacting with that timeline. I love multiple timeline films. I love films that show you part of a story and then show you what you missed within that story that affected it in ways that make you completely reconsider what you've seen. And the whole movie is like that. It's got some terrific character work from Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, John Hamm, especially Chris Hemsworth as this sort of strange, sexy cult leader, if you can imagine a shirtless Crims Hemsworth playing a, a sexy anything. Josh is imagining it right now. Well, I was just going to say, I haven't seen this movie, but the way you're describing it, I'm going to be able to convince Debbie to catch up with it tonight. <laughs> but above all, Cynthia Erivo, who also played the character Belle in Widows, yeah. and is just unquestionably the, the breakout film performer of 2018 for me, plays a central role in this story as a singer who you know very little about at first, except that she's the only black character in a story of white people who are very clearly judging her by her skin color. And she gradually unfolds and unfolds into this character who is one of the most indelible and heartbreaking things I have seen on the screen this year. She sings and it's beautiful. She cries and it's beautiful. She reveals her story and it's beautiful. And boy, did this film just like fractal outward over the course of a viewing in ways that I was not expecting. It feels very much like 
Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight minus everything I hated about Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> Hateful Eight. The, just the, the mix of, of different kinds of characters with different, all who have different agendas, who have different backstories, the way they their personalities bounce off of each other, the just slow unfolding of these like conversations that reveal so much about who they are, all of that stuff without nearly so much of the blatant provocation and unpleasantness, I guess. Hmm, Bad Times at the El Real, probably my most unexpected experience in 2018 and one of the best for me. Yeah, I can't wait to see it now. And Josh, you and Debbie can't watch it tonight because (laughs) unfortunately, as we're taping this, it comes out on streaming platforms tomorrow, which means I couldn't do the requisite homework and watch Bad Times at the El Royale. Debbie before will, Debbie will find a way. <laughs> yeah, she might. <laughs> she she has, might. She has contacts. All right, let's get on to my pick at number 10. It is The Death of Stalin from writer-director Armando Iannucci, known, of course, for Veep and In the Loop. It's about, really, the three men vying for power after Stalin falls. Malenkov, Nikita Khrushchev, and Lavrenti Beria, played by Jeffrey Tambor, Steve Buscemi, and Simon Russell Beale respectively. And the combination of those performances and the hilarious script, I would include in those performances Jason Isaacs as well as the war hero Zukov, who has the best entrance in the film as he throws off his coat in slow motion to expose all of his medals on his chest. All that's enough to make this a very good film. I think for me, what makes it one of my favorites of the year is the way Iannucci conducts this incredibly cynical symphony of avarice and ineptitude. And I have the word symphony in mind, I think, because of the great opening of this film with Patty Considine, where he's running the recording booth as an orchestra is playing. And Stalin actually calls and says, I want a recording of that, have it ready in the next 20 minutes. And he has to scramble. But there's a real musicality to the physical comedy as well as the verbal here. The first central committee meeting after Stalin's death, there's the ridiculousness of all this political maneuvering and infighting, but the rhythm of the staging and the editing of their hands going up as they're trying to achieve a unanimous vote is just really masterful. The picking up and carrying of Stalin's body is hilarious. Later at Stalin's funeral, the way they share barbs as they stand in a semicircle trying to look formal and regal, nobody is better than Iannucci at capturing the absurdity of idiots trying to appear more serious and consequential (laughs) than they actually are. And maybe my favorite little touch early in the film, Beria, and Simon Russell Beale is my favorite performance in this movie. He's the head of the secret police, and he's interrogating someone. He gets the news about Stalin. A steady cam shot leads them outside as he's giving instructions to one of his captains. And as they round a corner, a random body is being kicked down the stairs behind them. And the timing of all of that is just perfect. And actually, that moment's indicative of the whole movie. While we're laughing, and I laughed a lot at this film, Iannucci doesn't ever let us forget the true horror that these craven men are capable of, which is why I think it's actually great satire. There's a moment at that funeral sequence where Olga Kirilenko, who has a, a small part in this movie, but she's the pianist in that orchestra, she sees Stalin laying in state and says, my God, he's so small. And what Iannucci has done here is taken these titanic, terrifying historical figures and reduced them to very, very small men. Which doctor have you called? Oh, well, the subject is currently under discussion. Yes, as acting general secretary, I think that, uh, well, the committee should decide. The, com- the committee? But our actual general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity. I mean, I think he's saying, get me a doctor now. No, I don't, I don't agree. I think, uh, I think we should wait until we're quartered. 
quart? The room is only 75% conscious. Are you wearing pajamas? Yes, so? Why? Uh, because I act, Lavrenti. Decisively and with great speed. I said you'd be tested, and right now you're being tested by a shouty man wearing pajamas. Have you got a nappy under those too? Too late for him. <laughs> I loved it, and actually, Tasha, you loved it even more than me. You have it higher on your list. Loved is such a strange word for my reaction to this film because unlike virtually everything else on my list, this is not a film that I, I connected emotionally to in the way mm-hmm. I connected to a lot of these. But I could not help but appreciate just the immaculate construction of the screenplay, of of the acting, of the editing. Yeah. The way this film is put together, it's just I, – I, I keep coming back to the word immaculate. It's so – carefully thought through and constructed i i also laughed a lot steve buscemi like is there is there anybody who does weaselly self-absorbed like anger impotent anger better than steve buscemi (laughs) no and he does it to a t in this film it is it's a movie full of tremendous performances and tremendous moments and at the same time i i feel like it's such a a perfect clockwork device that i ended up a little alienated from the experience in a way. A lot of my other top movies this year drew me in, made me feel, you know, fear for the characters, angst for the characters, love for the characters. And here it was more like, that is just a a Swiss timepiece of a movie. Yeah, that's it. You're not rooting for anyone at any point in this movie, really at all. There's, There's no one to cheer for here. But I think it's glorious. You had it at number two. I did. In your top 10. Josh, we go to you with your number eight. Yeah, my number eight, also a comedy. I think it has some clockwork elements to it, maybe not quite as tightly crafted as Death of Stalin, but it's game night. And this is the (laughs) ensemble comedy about a game night amongst friends that gets out of control. Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams are the leads here. I had this on my top five of the year so far list at the midpoint. Something of a lark. You know, there's more wiggle room than you can do something like that. A, A lighter film that you really enjoyed. Throw it on there. But, you know, every time I've thought about it since, I just start laughing to myself and chuckling. And I have had maybe this is among the three or four films where I've most had people ask me, have you seen it? Or they've said, oh, I saw this great comedy. And you just start laughing about it together. So it's really found its audience this year. And yeah, it's still here on my list. I've got it at number eight. And there are a number of reasons for that. Jesse Plemons is Gary, this uh, creepy neighbor who's been (laughs) unwisely disinvited from game night. I mean, the laughs he can ring from just a dead stare. It's it's genius. He's got his forehead is funny. I mean, (laughs) you know, he's just so right, Michael. There's there's no forehead with better comic timing. I was going to ask, like, what percentage of that thinking about the movie and bursting into laughter is just you picturing his face? Oh, for me, I'm going to say (laughs) 34.8. No, I was Great a little, stuff. I was, little, I was a little hard on that film. I think I, you know I saw part of it again, and I was I was mixed on it. Although I loved, especially Rachel McAdams. I think if so she, uh, I mean, she is like so fun to see her in a straight she, comedy again. I mean, you don't want to over, you don't want to be too hyperbolic about it. But this is kind of a hint, anyway, of like golden age screwball heroine. I mean, like Carol mm-hmm. Lombard level. Right up there. And Irene Dunn, maybe. I mean, there's just a little, there's, she's sort of got it yep. that, that doesn't have anything to do with cliched, you know, Hollywood beauty or any of that. I just think she's got the kind of comic intelligence that is really rare. And Jason Bateman has it too. Yeah. I, I guess I found the thing that held me back from it, from really loving it, is it's got what I complain about all the time with action comedies, which is too damn much action and not enough comedy. I mean, the violence is 
pretty rough, and some of it's played for laughs and some of it isn't. But it's just like I just think that's so much easier to write and to try to land your story beats with just another gun getting yanked out. Well, the plot, yeah. The plot certainly ratchets up. I'll give you that. But I I do think that um, the laughs are always put at the forefront, even in all of those scenes. No, I'm saying the opposite, Josh. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) Yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Just disagreeing. (laughs) Okay, oh, yeah. Really? What's that word? (laughs) There is. There's also like a lot of visual wit here, too, though. I got to give credit to the the writer-directors, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, where they're doing things with the camera right from the start with the opening credits in the the first few sequences that that use camera work to make you laugh which you don't always get in a broader comedy like this and you mentioned the violence michael um maybe not every violent scene works but i'm not going to spoil it here because we also have a funniest moments category for our rap party and i've got a lock from game night that does involve violence so yeah it's as you're catching up with all the artsy fartsy titles we're going to talk about, which <laughs> yeah. I love to, you know, do yourself a favor if you haven't already and make time for game night. Also, to be fair, a lot of that violence happens to Kyle Chandler. And Who deserves it, clearly. That, yeah. that, makes it, that makes it so much more funny. Like, he also, surprisingly good comic timing for somebody who I think is at least, at this point, best known for his more dramatic roles. Right. That's true. Yeah, and you can tell, the, I, it's almost a sense of relief uh, with an actor like him. He was a good, solid actor in almost everything. And, and just to play a character that's quite different from the ones we've seen him you know, play in the last 10 years or so. In the next hour, someone in this room is going to be taken. And it's going to be up to you to find them before they are murdered. Oh, it's a murder mystery party. Not just any murder mystery. I found this company. They do it super real. They use legit actors. You're not going to know what's real and what's fake. Fun! But that's not all. Because whoever finds the victim wins the grand prize. The keys to the stingray. What? Wow. Just the keys? No, Ryan, the whole car. Oh, yes! Oh, man. You're so lucky I brought you to this game night and not one Max Annie's. Hey! No, I just mean because this is better. Well, I groaned there because you do probably have dibs on this movie as it's your number eight film of the year. But I was going to say that there's a McAdams moment that's a contender for funniest scene of the year for me. And I think it's the same one you're talking about, unfortunately. So now I'm just going to have to relegate it to the honorable mentions. Though the single best line reading in that film is in that opening conversation with Jesse Plemons when he's calling them out so (laughs) so subtly in deadpan. And he notices that they have the three bags of Tostitos (laughs) scoops and and bateman's like there was a special on these three for one he goes three for one yep he goes how can that be profitable for free delay (laughs) and just the delivery is just so perfect he's he's amazing in that all right we move on to another outlier from tasha at least this one i've seen and i agree it's a very good film it's your number four spider-man into the Spider-Verse. Oh, crud. How am I going to talk about a film that you've actually seen? I know. Like, now, now I have to defend <laughs> something that you know about. Wow. There was, a, there was a lot of good animation this year. But for me, the thing about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, like as a Spider-Man story, it's exciting because it's yet another origin story. And it plays with the idea of the origin story. It plays with the audience's understanding that we've seen so many origin stories for Spider-Man already. It plays with everything they know about the character and everything they don't know. And it plays with expectations by bringing in this new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, who's an Afro-Latina kid in Brooklyn who has 
<laughs> I was just sitting in an interview that The Verge did with the directors earlier today, and they point out that he's got both a mother and a father, which is just kind of unheard of for superheroes, for kid protagonists of animated series, huh. just in general. Like, he has a supportive family unit around him that, that cares and is involved in his life. So it's on a lot of on a lot of different levels it hits beats that are unusual for a superhero film for a familiar superhero for an origin story it is so ambitious both in its storytelling which ends up involving all of these different universes with different versions of the Spider-Man character having different experiences interacting with each other each having different ideas about what it means to be a hero but also just in terms of its animation This film is based visually on the idea of comic book panels, but also on the idea on abstract ideas like screen printing and urban graffiti, like all of these different visual elements that get drawn in. And it goes to a a vast and psychedelic place that just kind of speaks to a level of ambition on the filmmaker's part. One of the things they had to do for this film was completely rework how CGI animation is done because they had ideas for how they wanted it to work. And at this point, there's an established pipeline. There are all of these pieces of software that people use to make these films. And there are processes for for creating these images, and none of them worked for the story they wanted to tell. So they had to, to break these things down and do it from scratch. And you can tell. Like watching this film on the screen, it's not like anything visually that you're likely to have seen before. The action operates like at a a dizzying, almost blinding speed. The jokes come at really quick intervals, but it also tells a meaningful and moving story. And by the end, it's almost overwhelming just how how big and intense this Mm -hmm. movie gets visually. It's such a big screen movie. So I enjoyed it as a Spider-Man movie. I enjoyed it as a superhero movie. But more than anything, I enjoyed it as a bunch of filmmakers trying to break the mold of what is becoming, you know, we we kind of broke out of the everything looks like a Disney cell animation, hmm. which is what animation was in like the, up, up through the 1980s. And then everybody started emulating Pixar because that was where the money was. Now suddenly we're getting the first wave of people saying we have all these tools. We don't have to build the exact same things with them. This is It's a really exciting place to be just like at the forefront of what I think is going to be a new movement in animation. Yeah, I think that ending is a little bit overwhelming, but I was completely with this movie up until that point. And I even forgive it maybe those excesses because they're so tied to the character. They made a Spider-Man film in a visual style that is unique to the character of Spider-Man in this case, Miles Morales, as you said, it's a very good film, Michael. Oh, you seen yeah, it? it's great fun, and I think your point about the there uh, was there was a beautiful uh, actually assessment of every reason it's fresh, <laughs> Dasha. And I think the the idea that if you tell this really really crazy Hydra-headed story in the right way that sort of evokes just the experience, the actual experience of flipping through a comic book, <laughs> you know, page by page, panel by panel, and you're getting all kinds of just outlandish, really just just flamboyant action, but it is not being received by your eyes or your head or any part of you in the kind of way that blander photorealistic animation turns, quote, animated fake violence into real violence. I mean, if you see a movie like Rango, which I hate, I don't know why everybody likes that film, but, uh, <laughs> you know, feel like that where it's like the idea is like it's going to look as realistic as animatedly possible. 
as filmic as possible. And therefore, it every time that somebody gets clonked on the head or you know, smacked with something, it, it is it is no different than if it were happening in a live action film. Well, that's crazy in this world, and they've you know this really sharp edged and constantly inventive uh, animation style it just takes you anywhere this movie wants to go and it's really funny and if the and i guess you know the talk about a movie a line that does not work out of context but my, one of my favorite single laugh lines of the year thanks to this film is he took a bagel you know, in the middle of a chase scene, where just you know somebody somebody takes a bagel off a table, and yeah. somebody else actually takes the time to say that line, and it's just I was it was a great experience of like laughing out loud and alone, which is what I'm used to. <laughs> we have one more outlier pick here for part one of our top ten films of 2018 countdown, and Josh Larson, the pick is yours. And the movie is Private Life, which I've got at number seven on my list. Another comedy, I would say, though, slightly different strain than both Game Night and Death of Stalin. This is writer-director Tamara Jenkins' portrayal of a couple in their 40s who are struggling with infertility. Uh, They're played by Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti. So not necessarily a funny subject matter, but I think the perspective that Jenkins brings, and I've described it as she has this unblinking eye and somehow she's still able to sneak in a wink here or there, it allows for humor to wiggle its way into this story. And this film had some of my favorite types of performances where comedic actors get to build off their comic personas in dramatic directions. So very similar to what you guys were talking about earlier with Melissa McCarthy in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Here you have Katherine Hahn who has this incredibly fierce yet also very funny anger over having her dignity routinely invaded by these medical procedures. And you just see that building up in her as the story goes on until at one point it just explodes. Oh my God. You're like so gung-ho right now. It's like, it's freaking me out. I am not gung-ho. I'm just pragmatic. Look, if we do another IVF with your eggs, we've got, what, a 4% chance of getting pregnant? With a donor egg, we'd be going from 4 to like 65%. So, I mean, the gambler me just wants to put my money on the better odds. Oh, my God. You're Guy Woodhouse. What? The husband in Rosemary's Baby, John Cassavetes, that's you. Yeah, right, that, that's me, standing by while you're raped by a satanic demon. I am just suggesting that we listen to our doctor and look into all the options. We're already signed up for adoption. What is the big deal? Uh, well, for one, I'm not putting someone else's body parts into my uterus. Oops. Excuse yeah, me. Sorry. Molly Shannon, I want to cite too. She is the sister-in-law here who does manage in a fairly small part She snags a lot of laughs, gets them where she can, but also has this nuanced portrait of a woman struggling with menopause. So Shannon is uh, someone I've long thought capable of doing more work than what we generally see of her in just the comic strain. And she certainly shows that here. So there's there's just some great honest stuff amusingly handled in private life. It was a movie that was not even on my radar at the start of 2018, but here at the year's end, I've got it at number seven. This is a Netflix title that, unlike Roma, actually can and should be seen as quickly as possible on Netflix. I mean, this is this is high, high quality writing and directing. And Tamara Jenkins did The Savages. This film is even a little bit better than The Savages. And The Savages belongs to a different era. That got a limited release as an independent film. And a lot of people liked it. A lot of people, you know, didn't wasn't for them. wasn't enough. This film, I think, it just is. This is the perfect home for it. Netflix, and unlike Roma, which Netflix, I'm happy is distributing, but uh, that truly is a theatrical experience 
only. I hate to say that, but I think it's, it, I don't know if Roma is going to hold up on anybody's phone or laptop. I, private life, you can see right away. You certainly any can. Device. I, but I would also say it does have a lot of visual humor and including the opening sequence alone, which is a, a visual gag that takes advantage of the whole frame. So yes, I don't think it loses quite as much as Roma does on the small screen, but there there's definitely a visual element that Jenkins brings to it as and well. And the performances are just, are just sterling. Great. Uh, you didn't sterling. mention my favorite, one of my favorite of the year, Keely Carter. I think really makes that film in a supporting role. That is part one of our top 10 films of the year countdown. You can find all the titles at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists or go to filmspotting.net slash lists. If you're curious about where exactly we ranked all of them, what rankings we still have to come, go to filmspotting.net to find those. Part two will come next week when we move from our outlier picks to what we're calling the consensus picks for the best films of 2018. That will include our number one films of the year. Tasha, Michael, can we bring you back for part two? Or are you going to leave everyone in suspense? I think Tasha and I have to speak privately. <laughs> I mean, I You're already talked about all the films that I made up for this year. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, where can listeners find your work? Uh, you'd have to find it, and you should, at chicagotribune.com slash movies. You know, I'm on Twitter occasionally at Phillips Tribune. Coming and, to uh, Letterboxd. Uh, <laughs> 2019. If I Resolution. Must, if I must. If I must. Sure. Tasha, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd under my own name. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I'm the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com, so you can find my writing there and a lot of stuff that I curate by other writers. And we have a little podcast called The Next Picture Show, which is part of the film spotting family of podcasts. It is. Where I spend some time talking with Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky, my old buds from the av club and the dissolve every other week we talk about a new release film and a film that uh it rhymes with in some way something out of the past that contextualizes it in an interesting way you can find that at nextpictureshow.net on facebook on twitter all over the place thanks to you both listeners please send your picks for the best of 2018 or any other comments you have about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net you can find Adam and I on Facebook and Twitter. Adam's at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, there are 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, featuring one Tasha Robinson. That's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget the current Film Spotting poll as well, where we're asking... What film should win the 2018 Golden Brick Award? You can answer that at filmspotting.net. Out in wide release this weekend, Mary Poppins Returns, Aquaman, and Bumblebee, set in 1987, stars Haley Steinfeld and John Cena. Haley Steinfeld, great actress. John Cena, very funny actor. Bumblebee, great and transformer, getting... Adam? Sure. <laughs> sure. And it seems like this might be the first good Transformers movie, at least based on some of the buzz I've heard so far. I don't think that's possible. Okay. Second Act with Jennifer Lopez is also out. And Welcome to Marwen. This is the Robert Zemeckis adaptation of the very good 2010 documentary called Marwen Call about a man recovering from a violent attack who builds a scale model of a World War II-era town in his backyard. It stars Steve Carell and Janelle Monet. Expanding to more screens, Mary, Queen of Scots, and The Favorite. We definitely recommend you check out The Favorite if you haven't already. And on Christmas Day, Holmes and Watson, starring 
Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, and Vice, the latest from Adam McKay with Christian Bale as Dick Cheney. In limited release, opening in Chicago, you can see On the Basis of Sex, that's the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic with Felicity Jones, and If Beale Street Could Talk, the latest from Barry Jenkins, which we just talked about here on Film Spotting last week. I can tell listeners, Josh, that two of those titles are definitely coming up next week when we do part two of our top 10 films of 2018. Will one of them be Bumblebee? Mm, I'm going to say Second Act has a better chance. Okay. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Give us a holiday gift if you don't mind. That would be a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach a few new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.